Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Patented. It's my podcast about the history of inventions by History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell. Please indulge me for a moment because before we get started with today's interview about the invention of the telegraph, which is fascinating, I want to read you something. It's from a book that was a bestseller in 1879 and it's called Wired Love, A Romance of Dots and Dashes. And it's rather prophetic because it asks how authentic a relationship can be that takes place between telegraph operators who never actually meet in real life. They just communicate via Morse code. And this is from the very beginning when the heroine, who is a telegraph operator called Natty, gets chatting to another operator just using dots and dashes, of course. And all she knows about this mysterious person is that they are stationed in a small town and goes by the call sign or handle or moniker of C, as in the letter C. And anyway, C has just asked Natty to describe herself. Does this sound weirdly internet-y familiar? Actually, you know what? I'm not going to read it. I'm going to act it for you. In fact, I'm going to act it with the help of my great friend, actor Francis Gray, West End star, currently starring in... Harry Potter and the Cursed Child on West End Stage. And you may remember, Francis, who beautifully read for us a poem about Kirkcaldy linoleum in a previous episode. We are nothing if not niche. Anyway, here we go. Certainly. Imagine, if you please, a tall young man with... Oh, no. You cannot deceive me in that way. Under protest, I accept the height... But I spurn the sex. Why, you do not suppose I'm a lady, do you? I'm quite positive you are. There's a certain difference in the sending of a lady and a gentleman that I've learned to distinguish. Can you truly say I'm wrong? People who think they know so much are often deceived. Now, I make no surmises about you, but ask fairly and squarely, shall I call you Mr., Miss, or Mrs. C? Call me... Neither call me plain C, or picture, if you like, in place of your sounder, a blonde, fairy-like girl talking to you with pensive cheeks and sunny. You know, the more mystery there is about anything, the more interesting it becomes. Therefore, if I envelop myself in all the mystery possible, 
I will cherish hopes that you may dream of me. There certainly is something romantic in talking to a mysterious person, unseen and miles away. But I would really like to know whether my new friend employs a tailor or a dressmaker. Thank you very much, Francis. My apologies for my very, very poor American accents. Francis, of course, was on point. But anyway, that book from whence that comes from was written by Ella Chivathea, who was an American playwright who'd been a telegraph operator herself and so was writing from experience. But obviously it reeks of the etiquette and the horrors and the joy, I suppose, of online dating in the early days of internet chat rooms. And the point is that the telegraph really did foreshadow the internet and the impact it had on the world was far-reaching in its own way. Which brings me to my guest, Tom Standage. He is the author of the book, The Victorian Internet, The Remarkable Story of the Telegraph and the 19th Century Online Pioneers. He's also the deputy editor of The Economist magazine. So get ready for the story of how the telegraph went from being a long line of monks holding hands to a technology that really did straddle the earth. going to talk about the history of the telegraph and your nice analogy of the internet and the telegraph. I've had your book for many years on my shelf and I wrote a note to myself saying remind to tell Tom about the story about the magic sponge in the 1630s. Oh what did it do? Well my favourite kind of telegraph early internet stories. Oh this is the powder of sympathy idea. Is it a similar thing to that? No well basically 1630s there was a Dutch mariner called Captain Vostelok who sailed to some island in the wherever, and he found this group of people who communicated using sponges. And what they would do is they'd pick up the sponges and they'd speak into the sponge, and because the sponge is porous, it would hold the sound. And then you'd carry the sponge to another island, and then you squeeze the sponge and the sound comes out. Amazing. I did a thing about it a while ago, but I always thought that's kind of a Tom kind of story. Yeah, I have a few examples of these kinds of stories in the Victorian internet where people were trying to build communications devices using magic and needless to say, they didn't work. You get this in the longitude problem as well. That's basically an instantaneous communications problem. So you get powder of sympathy and various sort of black magic going on there too. Magic and technology, you see, we could have another many hour discussion about this. Well, magic was technology. White magic is the old word for technology. So yes. As opposed to black magic. As opposed to black magic means you're cheating and using the devil. So when the Turk, another of my books, you know, when the robot that plays chess shows up, everyone is like, is it white magic or black magic? The robot Turk, dear listener, is a classic in the thought experiments. People talk about robots and AI. They always bring up the mechanical chess playing Turk. They do now because I put it in the water supply. Also, Mechanical Turk, the Amazon Mechanical Turk is named after the book as well. And we're all the operator inside the Turk because AI systems are trained by the output of the humans who use the internet. So we're all the people operating the AI from the inside without realizing it. But anyway, those are all other stories. These are other stories. Just before we start, just really quickly, because I woke up this morning and once while we're talking about AI, and there was a flurry because Elon Musk had signed some thing saying, oh, we, we should stop AI research because of chat G. What? Did you sign this? 
I haven't signed it. No, I think it's silly. Other people have signed it too, and I can see why people are freaking out about it. Well, I can't really, actually. I think it's all a bit silly. I think the main thing you have to remember with Elon Musk is he has the world's biggest messiah complex. So he's going to save the world from climate change, the electric cars and all the rest of it, which is great, but it's like his mission, he's going to do it. He's going to save the world from asteroids because we're going to build a city on Mars, so hence all the rockets and reducing the cost of access to space. And another existential threat that he thinks only he can defend us from is AI. And so OpenAI, the company that makes ChatGPT, was originally founded because Elon was worried that other companies, <clears throat> DeepMind founded by Demis Hassabis, and both of them regard the other as an evil Bond villain. And I think most of the world looks at both of them and says that you could both be Bond villains. But OpenAI was designed to be a counterweight to DeepMind because Elon was worried that all of the AI talent in the world would go to DeepMind and they would end up with a monopoly. And OpenAI, it now transpires, has built this thing that Elon is even more scared of. And although he initially co-founded it, he's no longer involved with that company. And so he's sort of saying, oh no, we need to do something. And once again, he is casting himself in the role of saviour of mankind by stepping forward and saying, this is a danger that I have perceived and we need to act. He's a showman. He is. He is a very smart guy. A long tradition of showman in the world of technology. I mention this only because I know you are a great collector of technology moral panics throughout the ages. Yes, exactly. And this looks like another one. You know, what's ChatGPT going to do? It's not connected to anything. All it's going to do is give you the wrong answer about stuff. And there's already lots of people who can give you wrong answers about stuff on the internet. And ChatGPT is kind of mass producing wrong answers. Anyway, dear listener, we're here to talk about the invention of the telegraph. You called the Victorian internet, which is a book you wrote some time ago. When did you write that? It came out in 1998. It was indeed my first book. And it's still in print. I'm going to read a little bit because it's quite elegantly written. But let me paint you this picture. Dear listener, an ocean cable is not an iron chain laying cold and dead in the icy depths of the Atlantic. It is a living, fleshy bond between severed portions of the human family, along which pulses of love and tenderness will run backwards and forwards forever. By such strong ties does it tend to bind the human race in unity, peace and concord. It seems as if this sea nymph rising out of the wave was born to be the herald of peace. I should emphasize, I did not write this. I quote this as an example of the equivalent of the overreaction to technologies that we see today, that when the first transatlantic cable was completed, an awful lot of terrible poetry was written, and an awful lot of people predicted that it would lead to world peace. Because again, this is an engineer's perspective, which is the reason we have wars is because of insufficient communications infrastructure. And if everyone just talked to each other, then we wouldn't have wars anymore because they are due to a lack of adequate communication channel. This is not why we have wars, right? We have wars for students stupid ideological reasons. We have wars for fights over resources, and it doesn't matter if we can all talk to each other instantly. That's probably going to make war more likely. The problem is the human brain, we like simple stories. We like utopias, we like dystopias. Engineers also like the idea that a new invention is the answer to everything and will solve everything. I was at a Facebook conference a few years ago, F8. It must have been 2015 or 2016, so it was before the 2016 election. Mark Zuckerberg made exactly the same argument, and I just couldn't believe it. It was like, oh my God, have we learned nothing since the 1860s. He was standing there saying connecting everyone together using WhatsApp and Facebook and everything was going to improve everything. and It would help us all understand each other and reduce conflict. And ironically, this was just before we saw Facebook and other social media being weaponized to make everyone very angry and vote for Donald Trump. So you make the analogy in your book called The Victorian Internet, and your analogy is that early telegraph and the internet's kind of come from the same thing, where we think of the internet as being very modern and very de rigueur and of the now. Actually, the invention of the telegraph did a very similar thing. So take us all the way back. When does the telegraph, even the sort of proto-telegraph, presumably things like lighting beacons and fires was a sort of idea of an early telegraph. 
Yeah, sort of. I mean, the thing about lighting a beacon on the top of a mountain is you have to agree what lighting the beacon means in advance. So if you're expecting an army to come over the horizon, you can say, look, when you see the army come over the horizon, hey, person on top of mountain, please light the beacon and then we'll know down here in the city that the army is coming or whatever. So you can't use it to send an arbitrarily complex message. You have to say either the message is being sent or it's not. And you see this in Lord of the Rings. They light the beacon, which means you have to do something. So everyone goes, okay, that means we have to do this. Similarly, in Britain, we did this with the Spanish armada. We knew the armada was probably coming and there was this system of beacons. And when somebody on the coast saw the ships, they lit their beacon and then all the other beacons got lit and then the message then gets transmitted. But that's quite crude. And so as soon as the telescope is invented, pretty much Robert Hooke invariably, inevitably, it's always Robert Hooke in the 1670s specifically. So this is within about 60 or 70 years of the invention of the telescope. He says, well, hang on a minute, we could use this to communicate things. So he invents this thing that looks a bit like a and you hang letters on it or you hang signs on it and you can see them from quite far away on a good day with a telescope. And so he says we could use this to send messages over long distances much more quickly. And as far as I can tell, that's about the first time that people start to say, let's figure out a kind of general long distance signaling mechanism. When you say it looked like a gallows, are we talking sort of semaphore, which has a kind of grammar, I suppose? It was a bit cruder than that. So like many things Hook suggested in the 1660s and 1670s, he was working on an awful lot of things and suggests lots of things that he doesn't follow up on because he's just so full of ideas. So in that case, it was quite crude. I think it was as simple as you hang a giant letter R for the letter R, but you can see the letter R from 10 miles away with a telescope on a good day or whatever. So that's the sort of thing he's thinking. But actually that goes nowhere. And it's really only the 1790s where things start to happen. And this is where the Schapp brothers come into play. And these are two French brothers who are experimenting with long distance signal mechanisms. And they try various things. Again, they've got telescopes. They try starting off sort of banging on soup tureens. And the problem is that sound doesn't go very far. It doesn't go very fast. And the wind, you know, mean that it doesn't propagate in the direction you want it to. So they move on to using giant basically bits of wood with that are white on one side and black on the other, and you can sort of flip them round. And so then they have a system where they use synchronized clocks and you have a clock at each end. So you have two people on adjacent mountains or whatever, and they both have clocks and you flip the card at different times to indicate different letters or there are various ways you can imagine that this might work. If you've got these perfectly synchronized clocks and you watch the second hands go round, then depending on what you set the piece of wood to at, say, the half-past point, that could allow you to send what we would call a bit these days, a single black and white thing. And again, that was a bit rubbish too. And the problem is that the clock synchronization turned out to be a massive pain. So the Schapp brothers eventually moved on to something that I think modern observers would look at and say semaphore, though semaphore is actually something slightly different. But essentially, they built this system where they had a tower, and on the top of the tower was a post with an arm that came out of it that could be rotated, a sort of crossbar. Each end of that crossbar bar was another bit that could be rotated. And so essentially you had a sort of, if I stand with my arms out and my hands up, like someone's pointing a gun at me, and then I twizzle my arms around my elbows. And then I also twizzle all of my arms. It's quite hard to do this just in audio, but essentially you could make, it turns out, 94 different shapes with the two little arms on the end of a big arm, all of which can be rotated. And if you then look at that through a telescope, that allows you to send 94 different symbols And so that was the basis of the first telegraph. And they also coined the word telegraph, which means far writer. They thought about the term tachygraph, 
So that would have been speedy writer. And we have tachometers, which measure speed. But they went with telegraph. And that's so it's originally a French coining of these two Greek words. And that ends up being the thing that is demonstrated in the 1790s. And the French government then decides to invest in a national network once this has been proved. And essentially, you can build these towers five or 10 miles apart. And you put people in them. And they have these arms on the top. And when they see the adjacent tower starting to move, because they have a kind of resting position, they go, oh, look, there's a message coming up the line or down the line. And then they move their tower arms into the corresponding position. And you can then have these symbols ripple up and down the network really quite quickly. So you could send a message from Paris to the south of France in less than an hour. And obviously, it would take much longer than that to send somebody on horseback. So this is, for the first time, a system that allows you to send information faster than you can send objects. And it's not just the one bit of you know information that the Spanish Armada is coming. It is an arbitrarily complex alphabetic message. And this is something that Napoleon thinks is great. And he expands the network all over France into Spain, because it has obvious military value. I wonder, do those towers still exist? I've been to try and see them. Yeah. So one of my favourite wines, and it is a coincidence, but Chateauneuf du Pape, one of the domains of Chateauneuf du Pape is Vieux Telegraph. And Vieux Telegraph is a domain where there's a hill where there used to be a telegraph tower. And I've tried to go to it while I was writing the book, actually. And I was told, ça n'existe plus. So unfortunately, although it appears on the label of the bottle, it's not possible to see it anymore. But I think there are a couple of towers in France that have been restored. And the British immediately ripped off this system. And the Swedes had a very similar system as well. We used a slightly different system. Instead of using movable arms, we used shutters that you could open and close. And I think we had six of them. So you can have a six-bit code. But it was basically the same idea. Build a system of towers and you can send messages. And so similarly, in this country, there are also a couple of towers that have been restored. And you can actually go and stay in one of them in the south of England. It's full of naval memorabilia as well, because this was built by the English telegraph system. The British telegraph system was built by the Admiralty. It appears in the Patrick O'Brien books, actually quite a lot of historical fiction refers to these systems. But the main thing was they were initially for military use because you could send orders to ships on the coast from Paris or London very quickly. And that was something that had obvious value. Napoleon, I think he was a fan of these sorts of things. You know, this new technology that came along, military leaders, I guess, like Napoleon, yeah, well, it would allow him to bind together. So the other thing Napoleon did was built a lot of good roads. And that's one of the reasons why in the early days, the car industry, France was really important. And it was where people went and did these long distance car races and things. Because France had really good roads because Napoleon had built really good roads so that you could move troops around. And this was a Roman thing, you know, the Roman road network, the Via Appia and all this bit. They built it so they could move troops around really, really quickly. And so the combination of a good road network and a telegraph network means that you can redeploy troops where you need to. And so that was why Napoleon was really into this. This is also, and this sort of gets onto where we're going with this whole story, this telegraph network could only be used for government messages. So it wasn't open to the members of the public to send arbitrary messages to each other. It was literally just this military network. But inevitably, some hackers found a way to use this network to rig the stock market. And this is the first cyber attack in history. And it happens in the 1830s. And basically what they did was they paid somebody at the Paris end of the market to introduce deliberate errors into military messages that were being sent to Bordeaux. 
And those deliberate errors indicated whether a government bond market had gone up or down that day. And because that news usually took two or three days to reach Bordeaux, if you could find out the same day, you could then place your bets accordingly. So this went on for several years before anyone noticed. And then when they did notice, the people who were doing this couldn't be charged with any crime because actually it wasn't illegal what they were doing. There was no law against making inappropriate use of a government communications network. So it's really clever. But this makes my whole point in one go, which is even before we get to electric telegraphs and wires or the internet, basically, as soon as you built, this is the world's first communications network, literally the first arbitrary data communications network. And immediately you get cybercrime, as we would now call it. And so what that tells you is whenever people go, oh, this new technology is bad because it allows people to do bad things, you should be blaming the people. You should not be blaming the technology. And we just get this again and again and again. You know, when the internet showed up, we had internet divorce. You know, it's easier to find your old girlfriend from when you were a teenager. This makes my broader point, which is technologies come and go, but humans are always idiots the same way. We have this sort of Neolithic software running in our brains. Different technologies push the same old buttons in our Stone Age brains, and they just amplify the good and the bad tendencies of human nature. And so, yes, you get things like cybercrime. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Tristan Hughes, host of The Ancients from History Hit, where twice a week, every week, we delve into our ancient past. I'm joined by leading experts, academics and authors who share incredible stories from our distant history and shine a light on some of antiquity's great questions. Was the Oracle of Delphi really able to see into the future? What can be discovered from lost civilizations? And was King Arthur actually real? You can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History Hit wherever you get your podcasts.
so we've got the mechanical internet, we can call it. So suddenly electricity happens. When are we talking? And then when do we suddenly get the electric telegraph? This is the kind of Victorian internet proper, as it were. Yeah. So people have known about electricity for a while. They've known about static electricity. And so I actually have in my book the story of the Abbe Nollet in 1746. So he gets a great big, essentially a battery, but it's a static electricity battery. So all it could do is discharge in one, it's called a Leyden jar, and it could just discharge in one go. And he essentially lines up 200 monks and he connects them all with wires that are 25 feet long. And so he creates this very, very long line of monks. So 25 times 200, whatever that is, I guess that's 5,000 feet long. And then he attaches the monk at one end to the battery and gives him an electric shock. And of course, the electric shock travels through the body of the monk and down the wire to the next monk. And it goes all the way along the line. And what's interesting about it is that all the monks cry out in pain at the same time. And this tells you two important things. Firstly, that the transmission of the electricity is essentially instantaneous. And secondly, that you can get electricity to go a long way, because that's a long way through a lot of monks. And so this gets people thinking, and this is happening in 1746, that maybe you could use electricity for some kind of long distance signaling, possibly not involving monks all getting electrified, but maybe there'd be some other way of doing it. So people start mucking around with that. And by the the early 19th century, there are a couple of systems that do this and they're quite inefficient. So let's imagine I'm building one of these telegraphs between me and you and you're at the top end of my garden and I'm at the bottom end of my garden. Basically, what I do is I get 26 wires, one for each letter of the alphabet. I attach a little pom-pom made of fluff or something at the end, dangling on a thread at your end. And then I get my laden jar and I zap the wires using my Leyden jar, and I can make the pom-pom at your end of the garden wiggle by zapping the wire next to it. Now, this is very inefficient because I have to build 26 wires for 26 letters of the alphabet using this Leyden jar. And if it's windy, all the pom-poms are flying around anyway. So it's not brilliant. But people are starting to think about it. And much more importantly, the battery has been invented right at the beginning of the 19th century. And then also the electromagnet. And then it turns out, of course, that if you have a battery and a long wire and an electromagnet at the other end, then when you turn the battery on, the electromagnet comes on and goes click, or a piece of metal next to it snaps onto it or whatever. So that is the basis of the electric telegraph. And this is something that people realise in the 1820s, hey, hang on a minute, we could actually use this for signalling. When you say some people, who are we talking about? I'm just trying to imagine the origins, because I'm about to get onto Morse code, which is kind of where we're going, isn't it? Is there a real origin? Well, not exactly, because there almost never is with technology. And you should be suspicious when people say, oh, and then this person had this idea and did this. With most inventions, the idea is out there in the water supply. And so people know about the battery, they know about the electromagnet, and usually they're doing experiments on a desktop with an electromagnet and a battery. And then some people start to think, well, hang on, if we put the electromagnet in the next room from the battery, would it still come on? And so there are examples of people doing this in academic settings as a demonstration. So in particular, there's one example where a professor of physics is demonstrating to his students the fact that you can have the battery and the electromagnet quite far apart. So he has wires strung around his laboratory, his lecture room, and he's got like half a mile of wire or something. And he's going, look, it still comes on even with half a mile of wire. And everyone goes, oh, that's really cool. But nobody looks at that and goes, oh, you could make a business out of that. They just go, oh, that is a very interesting demonstration of the laws of physics and electromagnetism. And so what it takes is people who know about what the technology can do and have the entrepreneurial nous to say, wait a minute, you could actually do something with that to sort of figure out that there's potential here. And so in America, that person is Samuel Morse. And Samuel Morse is actually a 
portrait painter and like many gentlemen of the era he's quite interested in science and likes to sort of keep up with the latest results and things and he hears about this electromagnet example from somebody and he's like but you could make a signaling device out of that why is nobody doing this and so he goes off and does it and you know there are other people doing it at the same time but he's so stubborn and so single-minded that he's the one who goes to Congress and lobbies for funding and demonstrates it to people. And just he will not give up. He's like a dog with a bone. That's what it is. Invention comes from the thighs. Because there's probably a lot of people who had exactly the same idea. We know there were, because we know there were physics professors demonstrating this. This happens time and time again with technology, that you need this combination of understanding what's technically possible, but also understanding what people might find useful. And in Britain, we get Cook and Wheatstone, who are kind of the two sides of that. So Wheatstone is the professor of electricity and very eminent. And then Cook is the more entrepreneurial character who says, hang on a minute, this would be really useful, because this is also the time when railways are getting going. And the big problem with railways and signaling is that the train is the fastest thing on earth. And if you want to send a message down the line saying stop, you can't because nothing on earth can go faster than a train by definition. And so signaling is a real problem. And so both Morse and Wheatstone and Cook in Britain initially go to the railway companies and say, here is a way that you could signal faster than a train, which would be quite handy. And the other nice thing about railways is that the people who've built the railway have already got the right of way. And so you can lay wires down next to a railway track without having to worry about getting rights of way. And so Wheatstone is quite funny about this in Britain. He's like, oh, I'm a professor and you know, I don't really want to get in the tawdry business of promoting things. And Cook's going, great, I'll do it then. And then Wheatstone's like, yes, but you've got to give me proper credit. So you get the kind of entrepreneur and the scientist in two different people in that case. And in Morse's case, you know, he kind of understands the science. I mean, nobody really understands things like inductance at this point, but he works with people who do know about that. But anyway, in both cases, they managed to get these working systems going. They managed to build demonstration networks alongside railways, which demonstrate that you really can send messages over long distances faster than anything else. Of course, Samuel Morse, famous for the Morse code. So his particular way of communicating that code was there a reason for the way it works, the dots and the dashes? Yes, it's interesting again, because once you've got this idea of you could make electromagnets far away, switch on and off, there are various ways that you could use that to send alphabetic messages. So the way that Wheatstone and Cook do it is they have quite an elaborate system with five different wires, and they have what's called a needle telegraph. So they have a rhombus shape with all the letters of the alphabet. In fact, they can only use 22 of them spread out over this rhombus. So they have a series of needles, and you can make pairs of the needles twist to point in different directions and point out different letters. So it's quite elaborate and quite complicated. You need to run five or six wires between every telegraph station. Whereas what Morse does comes up with a much simpler system, and it takes him quite a while to get to it. He initially starts off with what he calls telegraphic type, and it's quite similar to the way ASCII works now, where you encode letters of the alphabet using combinations of ones and zeros. Essentially, he makes these toothed bits of type, and he puts them into a rule, fits them into essentially a piece of wood, and then runs them through a machine. And the idea was that you could pre-prepare messages and then you could run them through the machine. And what that does is it makes and breaks the circuit in a certain pattern. And then at the other end, you have the electromagnet, which is connected to a pen, and it makes this wiggly line that corresponds to the pattern of teeth that you've got at the sending station. And then you can look that up and decode it. And what they fairly quickly found was that all of this was a massive pain and that getting a piece of type that has, I don't know, three short pulses and a long pulse to mean a particular letter, it was actually just much quicker to teach people 
that that meant a particular letter and just have a button at one end and a clicker at the other end. And so that's how we get to Morse code. So in effect, what they do is they take the complexity of the hardware and they move it into the software of both the code and also the operators. Because people, it turned out, could learn Morse code in the same way that you learn to read and write music or play a musical instrument. And the other thing that happens with all this is that Morse code is not really invented by Samuel Morse. It's really invented by his assistant, Alfred Vail. But the way Morse also does it is he has a code book and you have to look things up in the code book. So this combination of dots and dashes means this page on this code book, which is how the Shaps had done it, because they had had a 94 symbol system and you had to look up. The first symbol was the page and the second symbol was the word or the letter. And so Vale just says, look, let's have this much simpler system. And he has the idea of counting the letters of type in a typesetter's box to work out which are the most common consonants and vowels so that you can have the most efficient system, which is why E is a dot and T is a dash, because they are the most common vowel and consonant respectively. So that's how you get to Morse code. So we've got the technology, it's all in place, we've got a language, a code. When could ordinary people get online? as it were. Your comparison with the internet, when did it become a net that we could use? The network expands very, very quickly, starting in the 1850s, because it starts off being quite an expensive technology that is used by railway companies. And then they start to sell the ability to send messages between stations. And then people realise that that's a business right there. You don't need the railways. And so you get this flourishing of telegraph companies, particularly in America. I talk about the sort of explosion in the 1850s, which you read it today and it's very much, here we are, no invention of modern times has extended its influence so rapidly as that of the electric telegraph. This is Scientific American in 1852. The spread of the telegraph is about as wonderful a thing as the noble invention itself. And people say you can't make a map of the telegraph network in America. This is in 1848, people are complaining. Hundreds of miles may be added within a month. So you can't keep up with the map of the network. It goes out of date instantly because so many new wires are being strung up. So there's this explosion in the late 1840s, early 1850s, and people can then go into telegraph offices and send messages to nearby towns and that sort of thing. So does that count as being online? I don't think it does. And I think the weakest part of my Victorian internet analogy is that the telegraph operators were in this sort of virtual environment, could chat to each other all day, tell jokes, play chess, flirt with each other, etc. Most people were not telegraph operators. So they would just go to the telegraph office and send a message. And even then, it was too expensive for most people to do this regularly. So this is why this sort of association with the telegraph and receiving a telegram was a sign that, you know, something bad had happened. Births or deaths. I remember being sent telegrams. I've got the telegram here that was sent to my parents when I was born in 1969. You could still do it then. So I think they sent a telegram to tell them I was born. We're in the sort of 1850s here. And of course, this is when the transatlantic cable was late. Actually, I'm just reading from your book again. There's a lovely little bit. It says, "'Tis done, the angry sea consents. The nations stand no more apart. With clasped hands, the continents feel the throbbing of each other's hearts. Speed, speed the cable, let it run, a loving girdle round the earth, till all the nations neath the sun shall be as brothers of one hearth." Musk doesn't talk like that. Why don't we talk like that anymore? Oh, God, well, I'm kind of relieved we don't. There was so much bad Victorian doggerel poetry to wade through for this book, but it is quite funny. But it means something. They're saying, look, the world is now totally connected. Here we are. Yeah, and they were completely wrong because that was written after the completion of the first electric telegraph line across the Atlantic, and it broke almost immediately. I mean, it basically hardly worked at all. A lot of people thought it was a scam, and you can see why, because it took something like a couple of days 
attorneys to send the congratulatory messages between Queen Victoria and the US president. They were fighting so hard with this cable to make it work. And the problem was they didn't understand the electrical properties of electrical conductors underneath the sea. And so they thought the best way to get the signal to go further was to turn up the voltage. And that just fried the insulation on the cable. And so they basically destroyed the cable. It's an engineering problem. It is. It is. Essentially, what happened with that first cable was you've got these networks spreading in Britain, in America, in various bits of Europe. Somebody says, hey, maybe we could do a cable across the channel. So he literally gets a whole load of wire, goes across the English channel, throws it out the back, shows that you can send messages from Britain to France and back again along this wire. But the wire immediately gets snagged by a fisherman's boat. And so they realise that you have to like weigh it down. So they start trying to figure out how to send messages. And in fact, Morse does this too. He sends messages in New York. He runs a wire from Manhattan to another island to try it all out. So people are starting to think about this. As soon as the telegraph starts working, they're like, okay, how are we going to connect up different countries? And what happens with the Atlantic telegraph is that the wire you would need is so long that it will not fit on any ship afloat. And so I don't know if you can see, here we are talking with video on, there's a ship on the wall behind me. Is the Agamemnon docked in Greenwich, where I live, so just down the road from here. And it's docked at the cable works because it's taking on the British portion of the transatlantic cable. And what they did was they sent an American ship with half the cable and a British ship with half the cable. And they met up in the middle of the Atlantic and they spliced the ends of the cable together. And then they sailed off in opposite directions. And then that enabled them to make this transatlantic link. And amazingly, it worked. It only worked for about two weeks because they fried it by using too great a voltage. And then the American Civil War intervened. And also a lot of people thought that the whole thing had been a scam and that the cable had never actually worked. And so you get this amazing hype and enthusiasm for the cable when it's first completed in 1858. Everyone goes nuts. And then after two weeks, it stops working and you get people saying, was the Atlantic cable a humbug? And was it all a massive investor fraud scheme? Because it was really expensive. And so it takes a while for another attempt to be made. It's not until 1865. And that's because you have to raise the money to do it all again. But also it's because they had a big inquiry into what went wrong. And the star witness at that inquiry was, we now know him as Lord Kelvin, a great physicist of the 19th century. But he essentially figured out the physics of what happens when you put conductors underwater. And this is where you have to start understanding electrical concepts like capacitance and inductance, which they hadn't really figured out before. And he figures all of that out. And so they then build this new cable in 1865. The other thing they have is they have the Great Eastern, the biggest ship afloat, which had been imagined it was going to be a freighter and it was going to carry people around and it was going to be this enormous ship. And it was a complete white elephant. And it was sort of, no one could figure out what to do with it. And then someone realized you could use it as a cable ship because it was so big, you could put enough cable on it to go across the Atlantic. And so they use the Great Eastern to lay this cable. And Kelvin actually sends the first message through the cable using a thimble with lemon juice in it as the battery. That is his point. You do not need a large battery to send a message across the Atlantic. You just need the right understanding of electrical theory and what was called the mirror galvanometer, which was this amazing, very, very sensitive instrument that they used as the receiver at the other end. So they're not using electromagnets that go click, click, click. They're using this tiny spinning mirror that they're bouncing light off. But then it becomes possible. And in fact, that cable also goes wrong. They build another one in 1866, and then they fix the 1865 one. They fish it up and fix it. So then you've got two cables across the Atlantic. And we've had continuous ability to send messages across the Atlantic ever since. You mentioned this idea of sort of divorces and Facebook and people getting married online and romance, and actually technology being an accelerator of human behaviour. Is it true that there were marriages done by Morse code? Yes. Or is that nonsense? No, that's true. There are a few examples. So I found one example from Boston in the 1840s, 
And it was a businessman whose daughter fell in love with one of his employees and he forbid them to see each other. And so he sent the employee off to work in a different city and they wanted to marry. And so they managed to find a minister who would marry them by telegraph and they had to give their assent by clicking the telegraph key. And then there's a later example from the 1870s. There's a telegraph operator who's stationed on a military base in the Western United States and he wants to marry his fiancée, but there's no minister available to do it. And they find a minister who's willing to basically officiate remotely. And what's interesting about that is effectively it's a party line that runs through lots and lots of telegraph offices between the city where the minister is and the army base where the bride and groom are. And so the whole ceremony is conducted online. And all of the telegraph offices along the way are basically listening in. And then once it's, you know, I declare you man and wife, all of the telegraph offices send their congratulations. And later on, this telegraph operator, who's the groom, is greeted by people who say, oh, yes, I was at your wedding. And of course, they were at his (laughs) wedding virtually. So yes, you do get these things. And again, it's a great sort of love conquers all, but also that we saw this in the pandemic, didn't we? That people who couldn't have their graduation or their wedding receptions, they would say, well, let's do it in Animal Crossing or let's do it in Minecraft or people have got married in World of Warcraft. I mean, it's just the same old thing. Just briefly, because we're out of time, really. But I want to just know, did the Telegraph change the world in the ways that we think internet has completely changed the world? Was it as revolutionary, do you think? I think you can argue that it was a bigger change because before the Telegraph, it was not possible to send information faster than you could send objects. It just wasn't possible at all. There was no telecommunication. And when you go from having no telecommunication to having telecommunication, you can do things like have a newspaper that gives you a pretty good summary of everything that's happened yesterday. And that's one of the things you get with telegraphs. You get newspapers using them, you get wire services, and you get this greater access to information much more quickly because otherwise you've got news from the other side of the world a year later. You get much faster trade in stock markets. And in fact, one of the stories I tell in the book is about information overload and stockbrokers saying they used to have meetings once or twice a year with their clients saying, should we buy tea and sell gold? And then suddenly they're telegraphing them several times a day saying, buy this and sell that. And they're going, it's a nightmare. (laughs) It's all too quick. And so that acceleration must have been absolutely extraordinary for the people at the time. And what the internet did was it gave, initially, at least in the 90s when it showed up, it gave people in rich countries that already had telephones a different way of communicating instantly. And obviously the internet has changed lots and lots of things. But I think essentially it's increased the bandwidth and the kinds of information that we can send to each other and it's reduced the cost. But I think that's a different kind of change. It's a change in degree rather than a change in kind. And I think the telegraph was a big step. And I think that's why the spread of mobile phones in the developing world in the first 20 years of this century has been such a big deal because that, again, has taken people from a world of no telecommunication to having telecommunication. But never mind that they have which technology. The point is going from a situation where you have no ability to communicate instantly with others to a a situation where you do just has enormous societal impacts. And that's an enormous benefit. So I think that's the big shift. Now that we can send enormous amounts of information, how should we use it? And what's the right structure for a video app where you can post your photos? I mean, should it look like TikTok or should it look like Instagram? I mean, these are details in the sense of we can basically send pictures of anything to anyone. Good point. Tom, your thesis is sound and good and and entertaining. It's a terrific book, The Victorian Internet. Listen, we'll pause there, but come back on because I want to talk to you about the invention of social media. I'd be happy to come back and talk about that. Tom, a pleasure. Read Tom's books because they're great and his articles because they're great. You're very kind. Thank you. Huge thanks for coming on. Thank you. So there we go. That's it. The Victorian internet. Who knew? Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to spread the word using Morse code or 
carrier pigeon or whatever you like to do to spread the word. And don't forget to get in touch if you've got an idea or a suggestion for a topic that you'd like us to cover. You can email us at patented at historyhit.com or you can stop me in the street or send me a DM. However you like to communicate, we'd love to hear from your message. See you next time. Thanks for your company. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.